Okay, I hate to break this up. I cannot tell you how full my heart has been tonight. I'll try not to cry, just watching and listening to you guys. Um, just share what the Lord has been teaching you and just the fellowship here. It's just made my heart so happy. And thank you all so much for coming when you're tired and seeking the Lord. Um, so let me just pray and then we'll get started. God, thank you so much for already answering our prayers and for the rich sharing. And Lord, for these ladies who have made the commitment to come, Lord, uh, I just pray that now that you would empty all of us of ourselves and that, Lord, you would fill us with who you are. And I pray this in your name. Amen. So I have to tell y'all that my husband and I, probably me more than him, are wannabe gardeners, but we're not. Okay, like I really want to be a gardener. I've tried for years, and I, I'm just not good at it. And so for years, <clears throat> I have encouraged, I'm going to use that word, encouraged, my husband, so he's a fisherman, that when he comes and cleans the fish, that he needs to take all those leftover fish carcasses and bury them in the garden. Because my brother used to do that, had a big garden. And he has consistently told me, some animal is going to come dig that up and drag it off. It's going to be a terrible mess. And I have continued to encourage him, as we do as wives, over and over he needs to do that. And so recently, um, Gail works with me, and her husband's a fisherman, and she was telling me about his amazing garden and why it's so great, because he always buries the fish in there. <laughs> and so what did I do with this information? I went home and encouraged my husband once again that he needs to bury the fish. So a couple, a few weeks ago, he went fishing, caught a ton of fish, and cleaned them, and decided that he didn't want to listen to my encouragement anymore. So he went out to bury the fish. Now, it did not help any that um, it hadn't rained for weeks and the ground is hard as a rock, okay? So he's, he said, look, I buried it as best I could, but it wasn't as deep as it probably should have been. I'm like, oh, it's gonna be fine, it's gonna be great. Everything was fine. And the next morning, um, I, I wake up really, really early. And so recently, I've been going outside. Like, sometimes it's 3 or 4 in the morning. It's still dark, looking at the moon. I just spend a little bit of time out there, just in before the Lord in the quiet. I hear the, the roosters in the, the area come up before I go in and, and do my Bible study. And it was so wonderful. And I'm thinking, this is so amazing. And then I notice an odor. <laughs> I'm like, Hmm, that's not good. And then we had our grandson the next morning, and I'm in the bedroom playing, and he goes, bird, and there's this huge bird, <laughs> a vulture, right out the window on the garden spot. So guess what happened? Some animal had come and dug up the fish, just like my husband said, and now I look up, and there's vultures <laughs> circling my <laughs> So my first thought was, well, you deserve that, Lisa Walker. The Lord has just shown you that you do not know everything, okay? And my husband was right. And then I was, I was thinking about that in light of, of where we are in this passage tonight and where we've been in Romans now for a while. And I was thinking that that is a great illustration of what we do in our lives, of how we have what's dead and what's sin and what's corrupt and we cover it up or we bury it, and we think it's all going to be good and it's not visible. But so often the Lord allows 
things, most especially his word, to, to dig that up and let us see the truth. And that's exactly what Paul has been doing from Romans 1.18 through where we are today. He has been digging up the truth of where sinful man is. And we are so self-deceived that we think it's all good and it's there. And so it's not always pleasant. It doesn't always smell good, but it's necessary. And I will say this, that once um, we, he moved a couple of those things, but the air and the sunlight exposed that, the odor and everything went away and it was fine. It broke down. But it needed to be exposed. And so that's a big part of what Paul is doing in our lesson tonight. It's not pleasant, but it's necessary. So let's do a quick review about where we've been in Romans, okay? Um, we started off, and Paul introduced himself to the church at Rome, and he introduced himself as a servant of Christ, bond slave, and an apostle, one who sent forth. He said that he was obligated to both the Jews and the Greeks, and we know that part of that was from his calling when God first gave him the call. And then he got... In Romans 1, 16, 17, to the thesis. How many of you have been working on memorizing that? Anybody want to attempt it for us? Okay, well, do it with me. Let's see if, and I, I didn't review it, but let's see. Mine's kind of a mix, so yours might be different. So those of you that can join in in part, say it with me. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Okay, great. And that may not be perfect, but it's close. Okay, I don't have it perfectly either. Keep working on that because there's so much in that. I want us to really get that down by the end of, of our time in this first part. So Paul gives the thesis of what he's going to be covering in this entire book. Then from Romans 1.18 all the way through chapter 3.20, where we're going to end tonight, he talks about the wrath of God is being revealed, and men are without excuse. They have the witness of creation. They have the witness of their conscience that although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God or gave thanks. That was the beginning of the move away. And God gave them over. What they chose, God gave them over. That was part of God's wrath. This spoke especially of the pagans, unbelievers that, that don't have the Lord. Everyone is without excuse. And then last week, we saw how he spoke to the religious. They had no excuse because they judge, which shows that they do know, but they sin also. Then he addressed the Jews, and he said, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of their own sin. And he ended with circumcision has no value unless it's from a heart that lives to obey. So, we know that Paul, in the book of Acts, and prior to this, had traveled extensively teaching and debating, and he knew the objections that he had faced in all of these places. So he uses the technique of dealing with a common Jewish argument or of their resistance to his teaching before he gets to the summary of this section. 
The Jews were thinking, if circumcision has no value, this is what his accusers charged Paul with, um, then the Lord's calling to Israel as his chosen people was meaningless. And if it was meaningless, then ultimately Paul was blaspheming God. This was part of their argument. So he begins to address this. Okay, so let's look at chapter 3. We're going to look at the first four, four verses. <clears throat> and he says, and remember, this, this is part of a technique to make his point. He's going to deal with their arguments, and then he's going to go into the summary. What advantage, then, is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? That would have been their question. And he answers it. Much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. Some translations might say oracles of God. What if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. So first, we see that the Jews had many privileges that the Gentiles did not. And notice that Paul says, first of all, they're entrusted with the very words of God. The fact that he said first lets you think of what? that there's probably going to be more. He's going to finish this list in chapter 9, and we won't get to that until probably January. We're going to go through chapter 8 this semester, and we'll start and do 9 through 16 in the spring. But in chapter 9, Paul more fully addresses the issue of how God is dealing and has dealt with Israel. In chapter 9, he adds, this is chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. I don't think I added that on your homework, but that's where he adds that they had the adoption as sons, the divine glory, the covenants, the law, the temple worship, the promises, the patriarchs, and the human ancestry of Christ. So he's going to cover all of that and address that in chapter 9. Now, unfortunately, these advantages were intended to lead them to faith in Jesus Christ, but instead, it led them to self-righteousness. The Jews focused more on their privileges instead of their responsibilities. Now, I want us to think about that. God has given you and me many advantages as well. Otherwise, you would not be here tonight. Maybe you grew up in a Christian home, an advantage. If not, godly people, God brought godly people into your life to witness to you. I want you to reflect on your life for a minute while I talk about this. Um, you live in a free country where you have access to truth and gospel, and you can worship churches. You have access to the Bible. You have the ability to read. You grew up in a place where you learned to read, so you could read the Word of God. God's given you the mind to understand it, and on and on we could go with the privileges that you have. So I want to ask you, what have all these advantages brought forth in your life? It's easy for us to look at the Jews and think, well, you're just thinking about your advantages. We do the same thing, more than our responsibilities. Have all these advantages brought greater devotion and love for Jesus? Have they brought to you a passion to see other people saved? Or have they brought self-righteousness and selfishness into your life? Do you think more on your privileges than you do your responsibilities? in regard to the Lord. And it was significant that he said, first of all, the most important advantage is that they had the very words of God. Remember how I told you at the beginning that 
part of Paul, one of Paul's motivations to write to the Romans was to bring some unity to the Jewish and Gentile believers because there was a lot of cultural issues and divisions. And so he, ha- he tries to like tear down the differences first. We're all equal and then build up the unity of who we are in Christ. And so the only advantage that the Gentile Christians shared with the Jews was that they had the word of God. And so there's unity that he's bringing about, saying that, first of all, you have access to the word of God. And so without the scriptures, and this is why, one reason why it's so significant, without the scripture, we're all adrift and we're left speculating about the great issues of life. And we see this in our culture. Questions like, is there a God? Why am I here? How do I come to God? What about my guilt? Does my life matter? So much of the anxiety, depression, and instability we see in our world today, and especially in the younger generation, is because people have nothing outside of themselves, above and beyond themselves, to hold on to and anchor their souls to. And what an amazing treasure that we have right here, ladies, all of us. We all have a copy here. And how selfish we are that we don't share it, that we stay silent. We're like the Jews. We love the advantages, and we love keeping it for ourselves. And I want to say this, too. Uh, Some of the verses when you talked about, you know, the advantages of the Jews and and the scriptures, and we're going to see this in a little bit. God's word was meant, and it is meant for us, to not be a painting that we admire and we study and we look at. God's word is made to be a window It's always made so that we can see God. And our goal is to always see God. Not to look at it, yes, it's a mirror for us as well, but to not primarily be a mirror. That we can see God, because when we see God clearly, only in light of who God is can we see ourselves clearly. And so our purpose is not always, and, and, and I do this too, I go to hear a word from the Lord, I go to get help with things, and God wants us to do that. But we should not do that to the expense or not having the primacy that we look to see God. John Piper called it a window, and he made that illustration, and it was just very powerful for me. And I like to share that, that we need to look at the Scripture so that through it we can see the Lord. And, you know, Jesus, one of your homework things, said that, you know, you search the Scriptures, they speak of me, and then they completely miss Jesus. And we don't want to do that. We don't want to just see good things in here and things we can take for ourselves and miss who God is. And so um, I just wanted to exhort us in that, that we don't want to be like the Jews in regard to that. Okay, so he's going to continue dealing with them. Their next objection, okay, is that his teaching did away with the promises. What if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness, God's promises? And Paul says, not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar. So he's saying um, God made all of these promises to Israel. But part of the problem was, okay, some of God's promises to Israel were conditional. If you do this, then this will happen. Some were unconditional. I am going to do this. But what the Jews thought is that those unconditional promises um, applied to individual Jews at all times that God said he was going to do this, and it didn't make any difference what they did on those unconditional promises. And Paul more fully argues this in chapter 9, 
But here he says, look, God is true. He's the standard of all that's true, even if everyone else says something different. And he stands by his word. He stands by his promises. The unfaithfulness of the Jews do not negate the truth of what God says because God always fulfills his word. So the issue is he does have unconditional promises to the nation as a whole. And eventually many of those are going to come true, but it doesn't necessarily mean that's going to be true of every single Jew at all times. The point being that bottom line, God is true and we don't stand in judge. And then he quoted David when David is confessing his sin, and he's, David's saying to the Lord, so that you may be proved right, God may be proved right when he speaks and prevail when he judges. God is always correct in his judgment because he has all knowledge and he's perfect. Okay? Now he moves on to the third argument. And this starts in verse 5. Let's look at 5 through 8. And, and this is just a debating tool. This is not a valid argument. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. So he's making it clear that he's saying what some people would say. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? In other words, if sin brought out the righteousness of God and God couldn't judge sin, then he couldn't judge anybody. And the Jews are very big on him judging the Gentiles, okay? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim we say, let us do evil that good may result? And then he just dismisses them and says their condemnation is deserved. So this is a ridiculous argument. It's just a debating trick. He's saying, if my sin reveals God's glory, then let me just sin more. But there's also a kernel in this that we see of how people like to try to justify. They like to find a way to affirm what they're doing. And so here's the truth. The human heart has an amazing ability to justify its own sin. The human heart has an amazing ability to justify its own sin. So let me ask you, what sin or sins are you justifying or excusing at this moment? So now Paul has dealt with the Jewish objections, and he's going to get to the summary of this entire section that started in 118, the wrath of God is being revealed, okay? So this is this whole big section. The first element, okay, let me just give you this truth. This is going to be a summary. So here's another truth for this section. The first element of the gospel is confronting man with his sin. The first element of the gospel is confronting man with his sin. That's what Paul's been doing. The first element of the gospel is confronting man with his sin. Now I'm going to read um, 9 through 20. What shall we conclude then? Okay, so we can see it's a wrap-up. There's your, there's your key word. It's going to be the wrap-up. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. 
as it is written, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips, and their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. I want to just read all that at once because when you just read those verses over and over, do you feel just the waves of just boom, boom, boom hitting you in the face? And, and, and that's, that's significant. Paul wanted that to happen. Paul is aware that we all have a tendency to not deny our sin. So far in Romans, he's argued about man's sin from creation, from history, from reason, from logic, and from conscience. And now he uses the ultimate testimony, scripture. He says both Jews and Gentiles are under sin. Notice he doesn't say are sinful. He says they're what? What's that preposition? Under sin. That speaks to bondage, to the dominion of sin. It's not just that you have sin, you are under sin, okay? That's what's going on. And then he breaks it down into this 13-count indictment against fallen mankind. And the first section speaks of character. There's none righteous. That means right before God, according to God's standard. This speaks of human depravity, being spiritually depraved. And what the problem is, is we have a tendency to view ourselves and our righteousness from our normal human perspective, because that's natural. But we have to view it as God views it. Isaiah 64, 6 says, all of our righteousness is as what? Filthy rags. Human, one writer said, human righteousness is like pretend money. It doesn't work in God's world. I thought that was interesting. So we're all running around like my little uh, preschool grandkids with all the pretend money and buying things and thinking that we're good because we're looking at each other and comparing ourselves. And the reality is the standard from God is perfection. And our very best efforts apart from God himself doing the work are as filthy rags. So he said none is righteous. Then the next thing that he charges, the next indictment, is no one understands. There is no innate ability to fully comprehend God's truth or his standard of righteousness. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says this, The natural man, or the man without the Spirit, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them, for they're spiritually discerned. Now, that's important to understand in general, but it's also important to understand the people in your life that are lost, that don't know the Lord. We can't have an expectation that they're going to grab hold of spiritual things and truths and things that we get because they don't have the ability. And that should make a difference in how you look at them and love them and share truth with them. Um, yes, we want to share truth, 
And that should make a big difference in how we pray for God's spirit to come in and enlighten them. Ephesians 4.18 says, The unsaved are darkened in their understanding and excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance in them because of the hardness of their hearts. So once again, you start making that step away. Even though they knew God, they chose, and then the heart starts to become hard. Um, so he's talked about their character, okay? Um, the moral and the intellectual areas. But now he's going to move under the character to the will. It says, um, no one who seeks God. Now, we can't look at this in human terms because it seems that seeking after God has been the history of mankind through one religion or another, all right? People are always looking for God in some way in different religions. But I want to make this argument that they're not truly seeking God. They're actually running from God when they seek God in all of these false religions because in his sinful state, God doesn't seem good to the fallen person, the lost person. There's something fundamentally wrong with humans so that unaided by a supernatural work of God, we are unable to seek God. Now, I want to take a moment here, and I want us to talk about something a little bit because um, as we go through Romans, we're dealing with a lot of interesting concepts that, are, that, that help us have understanding of the world and life. But I also want to give you some terminology. So... I want to talk a little bit about free will and what's called the bondage of the will. In theology, the bondage of the will is that there's something wrong in humans and that we're literally unable to seek God. Now, this has been a debate for years, and I want to give you a little history of this debate because I, when I first uh, read this, I found it very interesting, and I liked it, and it made sense to me. And I'll just tell you all this, that um, the way I teach is I spend time in the Word, and I write down the things that I see, and then I spend a massive amount of time reading and studying and filtering through a lot of information from people that are way smarter than me. And the things that speak to my soul, I gather and put them together in a way that I think will make sense to you. And I try to bring to you the things that speak to my soul, okay? So I don't want you to think that all this stuff, you know, when I was a teacher, they told us that the best teacher is the best thief, or the best thief is the best teacher. So, and and the, th the crazy thing is, the longer you study, the longer you find out even the people you look to do the same thing, because there's somebody back over here that they copied. So I'm just saying, I mean, the Lord's given us each other to learn from. So I just wanted to put that out there, lest you think that I'm coming up with all this on my own. Okay. So let's talk about this bondage of the will. And, you know, the thinking today kind of is that we all have free will and we can we can decide you know freedom is huge to all of us and we all want freedom and freedom's been carried so far in our country into sin and it's really brought bondage but we're free to do whatever but let's just talk about this debate so at the end of the fourth and the beginning of the fifth century there was a big debate between Pelagius and he argued for free will he argued that if there's an obligation to do something there must be the ability to do it in other words, that wouldn't be right of God to expect you to do something if you didn't have the ability to do it. He said the will is neutral. We sin, but we don't have to. That was his argument. The will is neutral. At the same time, August, I call him Augustine. Some people call him Augustine. Augustine was a bishop at this time, 
And he thought the same way as Pelagius until later in life as he studied the Bible more. He came to see that man is not able to not sin and just choose God unless God's spirit moves on his heart. Then the debate carried forward. Let me get to my next page here. During the time of the Reformation, the 15th and 16th century, Erasmus, who was a Dutch humanist, believed in freedom of the will, that, that we had complete freedom to do whatever we chose to do. But Martin Luther wrote a book called Bondage of the Will. That's where you get the term from. He wrote that men and women make choices, free in many areas. I can choose spaghetti or I could choose salad, okay? But we are not free in and of ourselves in spiritual areas. We cannot choose God. That was Martin Luther's thought, just from Scripture, okay? Now, then we move forward to Jonathan Edwards. Many people think one of the greatest uh, minds that America produced. He wrote a paper, and I found this very enlightening, called Freedom of the Will. And he was the first one that really defined the will. You'd think that people would have defined the will. He said, the will is that by which the mind chooses anything. What we choose is not determined by the will itself, like it's this entity all by itself. But what we choose is determined by our mind. Our choices are determined by what we think is the most desirable course of action at the moment that we choose. We choose what we think is the most desirable course. It speaks to our motives. The mind is not neutral because it does think some things are better than other things, and it always chooses what it thinks is better. The will is free. It's free to choose whatever the mind thinks is best. But here's the problem. When confronted with God, the mind of a sinner never thinks God to be a good choice because it involves submission and service. It's not regarded as good. The mind is wrong in its judgment, but humans think sin is best. Now, John 6.37, and we're talking about freedom to come to God. John 6.37 says, Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. But who comes? John 6.44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. These are some of the verses that speak to there's a measure of freedom, and yet without God's Spirit, we're unable to come to him. Now, we're not going to settle all this right now, but I want you to think about these things. I want you to think below the surface. I want you to think about why you do the things you do, why people are caught in sin, why people we know do the things we do, and, and God's role in that, because all of that is a richness to me of the gospel and understanding all that the Lord has done and helping me to understand myself and other people, okay? So now you all know a little bit about free will, the bondage of the will, okay? Like I said, we're not going to settle everything, but I wanted to bring you some of these things as we go through Romans. Then he gets in verse 12 to the fourth indictment. Verse 12, the fourth indictment, all have turned away, okay? They're wayward. Now, What's interesting is, what do we know about Jesus? Jesus is the way. And often that's what they called early believers, those that followed the way. So these people are wayward. They've turned away from the right way, okay? 
Then in verse 12, the fifth indictment, they're spiritually worthless. They're useless. This word basically has the connotation of soured milk. Okay? So here's the truth. Apart from God, I'm worthless. Apart from God, I'm worthless. As a matter of fact, you're pretty much dirt because until the Spirit of God breathed in Adam, that's what he was, dirt. And they say that's what our bodies are composed of, the same composition as soil, pretty much. All right, verse 12, the sixth indictment, they're corrupt. It says, um, there is no one who does good, not even one. So we talked about their character. These indictments, all the way through verse 12, is the character. Now he shifts to continuing the indictment with conversation. This is very appropriate for us right now. We've just finished this whole series on our words, and it's significant. And he's going to do three quotes in, this, in 13 and 14, Psalm 5, 9, Psalm 143, Psalm 10, 7. And so he's using Scripture to confirm what he's saying. So he says, um, the seventh indictment, that their throats are open graves. This speaks to being spiritually dead. The throat is to the heart as when a gra- what a grave is to a corpse. Okay? It's what the dead fish was to my garden. Okay? And so you think about their throat, and you think about when you open your mouth to speak, we get out of the abundance of the heart, but when you start thinking about a bunch of dead fish in there, opening your mouth, and that odor that just floats all over the backyard are those words that you say with your critical spirit or your gossip that it's just like, and then you got the people that are the vultures that like that, and they come in because they're attracted to it. That's a whole other can of worms. We were having that discussion at work. You know, you have to be careful because some people are looking for that, like the vultures, you know, if you're going to be negative or critical or whatever. So we don't want that to reveal, ultimately, you know, these are are lost people, but we don't even want to have the aroma of that in our lives. Then the next, the eighth indictment, is they're deceitful. This can be flattery. This can be lying. This can be exaggeration. Any of those things. um, Do not speak to the truth of who God is in your soul with your words. Then the ninth indictment. It says, my translation says, the poison of viper on their lips, okay? And so you think about um, sharp, sharpness. You think about the fangs of a viper and the poison. You think about a critical spirit, gossip, poisoning the minds of people that hear you towards someone else when you have a negative or critical spirit. And then 10, their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, So you think about what is said that they neither glorified God nor gave him thanks. So cursing and bitterness certainly speaks to not having a thankful heart. And so it's very significant. You know, I know that that series that that Phil taught really spoke to all of us, but it's all in Scripture, the importance of our words, ladies, revealing who we are. And we don't want to have that indictment about the name of God being blasphemed Even though he's really given an indictment on unbelievers, we still struggle with the flesh. So we want to take it to heart that this is not, and maybe examine ourselves, because we may think we're a believer, and maybe the evidence of our lives is that we're dead. That's important to not just assume. God tells us to examine ourselves. So let me ask you this question. 
What do your words reveal about your relationship to God? What do your words reveal about your relationship to God? And then he moves on to the next part of the indictment, to their conduct. Okay? Oh, let me ask you this. I skipped this part. Are your words bringing life or death to those around you? Are your words bringing life or death to those around you? So indictment number 11, their feet are swift to shed blood. So this is their conduct. So you, you see the, the lack of care for others or life or um, whether they're doing actually, you know, murder or wanting to murder someone's reputation, I guess, with their words. But ultimately, um, you know, when you think about the violence and what we have in our society and how much we're seeing it explode, you see that that once the restraints are removed in some way, whether it's the restraint of growing up in a home with discipline or in a society where there's order or laws that are enforced, the natu- what's really in man begins to run rampant. And so we should not be surprised. Verse uh, the 12th, the 12th indictment, ruin and misery mark their way. Okay, um, it's brokenness and destruction is what it really means. The path is destruction. It means broken into pieces. And I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about um, the brokenness of families, the abused children, abused wives, all of the things that had to do with brokenness in our society that are a result of this process of turning away from God. The way of peace, this is the 13th indictment, they do not know. Having no peace themselves, they inevitably disrupt the peace of other people. They even try to destroy other people's lives. Do you know anybody like that that has no peace? And they, I mean, it, it goes with a lot of this. We all do. And then in verse 18 is the why of all this, the motivation, the root that brings this fruit. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is a quote from Psalm 36, 1. Now, let's talk about the fear of God. There's no fear of God before their eyes. There are two aspects of the fear of God, both one positive and one negative. The positive aspect is reverential fear. This is what we talk about with awe and awareness of his power, his glory, his holiness. Reverential fear is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 9, 10 says. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's reverential fear, having a clear picture of how great God is and how low you are. That's the beginning of wisdom right there, the fear of the Lord. But there's a negative uh, fear of the Lord as well that has to do with dread and terror. Even believers should have a measure of this kind of fear because it protects us from sinning. Proverbs 16.6 says, By the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. So there, there should be a measure, just like with your children, you want them to respect you out of love, but then again, someone said today, and they got on their kids, they said, you got the, you, you got the scary face, okay? So, I mean, there, there is that the peace. You don't want that to be the overwhelming thing, but there's a place for that to restrain evil. But unbelievers should have fear of God in the most intense and terrifying sense. So after we do the 13-count indictment, we come to the verdict on fallen, unrepentant mankind. Okay, And so it says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. 
Therefore, no one will be declared righteous by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. So every human is, number one, accountable to God for what she has done or he has done. Number two, every human is guilty of countless wrong things. And number three, every human is never justified by supposed good works. So accountable to God, guilty of wrong things, and never justified by supposed good works. Boy, this is feeling really good right now, isn't it? So the first stop in beholding the beauty of the gospel is to fully see your sin in light of God's perfect righteous standard. The next step in communicating the gospel, or the first step, excuse me, the first stop is in beholding it is to see your sin. The first step in communicating the gospel is the same when you're going to share the gospel with someone. God's perfect standard and every man's utter failure to meet that standard is the first stop in sharing the gospel. How difficult, how depressing this is, but there can be no cure without a truthful diagnosis. There can be no great love without understanding the greatness of our debt. So I want, I want to read you something, so just listen to this. Listen to this story that Jesus told. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, so he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and then she wiped them with her hair and kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house and you didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not pour oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, always look at the therefores, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven because she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. So I want to say, may these last few lessons have given you a greater understanding of your true debt so that you will have a greater love. And this week in your lesson, we are coming to a turning point in the glorious unfolding of this gospel. So I'm giving you a question that I want you to answer. I think it may be on your homework, but I want you to write it down. This is what I want you to look for. We're going to finish out chapter 3 this week. This is the question. How can God be true to his holiness, righteousness, and justice and forgive sinners. How can God be true 
to his holiness, righteousness, and justice. We know those are his attributes. They all exist at all times. Perfect balance. How can he be true to his holiness, his righteousness, and his justice and forgive sinners at the same time? How can that happen? I want you to think on that as you finish this section this week. And let me just tell you what a glorious answer it is. Let's pray. God, I, th I thank you for your word. I thank you for uncovering the truth of who we are. I want to pray that you would help us all become much more keenly aware of our sin and the debt that we owe you. God, that we would love you supremely. And I pray this in your name. Amen.